Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, the last part of this chapter, verses 14 to 16. So 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. So pay careful heed to God's word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. This section of Scripture has... Uh, three parts to it that we'll look at. Uh, the first part is the conduct of the church, or at least a an indicator of that. The middle part is a description of the church, and the third part is the uh, the confession of the church, which is the great mystery of godliness. So, what I want to do first is the description of the church. Uh, the church is God's household, and the three vivid uh, graphic descriptions of the church given to us there. And then we'll go back and talk about the conduct of the church, reflecting on that, and then the confession of the church as Paul uh, gives it to us here in this uh, in this chapter. And so it's the last half of verse 15. There are three descriptions of the church, God's household, uh, the church of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth, or the ESV has the pillar and buttress of the truth. So you first have this description of the church as God's household. It's the same word that's used in this book. Um, Like, for example, in the the earlier section of this, uh, this chapter, an elder must manage his household well. It's the same word for household. Uh, And it's used twice in the elder, once for the deacon. Let deacons uh, manage their own households well. Uh, We have it in, um, we have the concept of the household of faith in other places in Scripture too. Uh, For example, in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And in Ephesians 2.19, when Paul's writing about the building of the church into a temple in which the Lord dwells by his spirit, he says, consequently, you are no longer, speaking to Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And uh, the description is a, a wonderful one, or it could be a wonderful one to you. If you have a terrible family, of course, that's not going to be very comforting. But it, the, the church is God's household. We are a family. We're bound together. Uh, God is our Father. We as believers are uh, brothers and sisters in the family of God. And the implications of it is we have this 
ongoing, really eternal relationship, because that relationship will continue on uh, in glory, and we will uh, be with everyone in a perfected family. And that's probably what you're looking forward to, the perfected family. <clears throat> Sometimes living among with one another has its challenges. There's a little poem. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know, now that's another story. <laughs> and that's the way we kind of feel. Uh, we love one another, but, you know, we, we have our bumps and bruises along the way. That's just a part of it. In, in John, when we looked at that, 1 John 1, 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the goal God has for us as a church is that we grow as a family <clears throat> in love with Him and uh, closer to one another. And A.W. Tozer has a very interesting uh, description or illustration he says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other, than they could possibly be were they to come, become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Another person used the illustration of a triangle. If God's the <clears throat> peak of the triangle and you and I are on the branches, the closer we get to the peak, the closer we get to one another. And so this description is very important and helpful. The church is the household of God. And it has implications for us in our relationships with one another. The second description is it's the church of the living God. That which unites us is our relationship with him. <clears throat> the church is the dwelling in which God, uh, the, the temple in which God dwells by his spirit. That's the um, description in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, so you and I, as members of the church, are in a relationship with the living God, and that should characterize our church. That our relationship with God has to be primary and has to be the significant thing. Um, <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, urging our unity in the truth and in God, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. That kind of implies also the covenantal relationship, but it's the living God that is our center point. Uh, it's the, it's what, it, what's, it's what unifies us. Uh, we may have many of us similar interests. Maybe we read some of the same books. But none of those things will keep us um, unified. It's the living God 
that dwells within us. <clears throat> One of the evidences of the truth and reality of the living God is the church. Uh, if you have a question whether God exists or if someone has a question whether, whether God exists, uh, where you find that is in the church. That doesn't mean the church is perfect and we're not always good illustrations of what we ought to be, but nevertheless, <clears throat> it's a very important part of our gathering. And that underscores the importance of us, of us being together, not just in times of fellowship, but in times of worship. It's very significant that you and I come together and join together in our worship in our relationship with the Lord. It inflames our relationship with God. Martin Luther made the comment, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. That is, when he's worshiping on his own. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. And it's not that you can't worship on your own and, or shouldn't at home or in your family. But there's something powerful about the worship of the people of God together. As they join their voices, as they join their hearts in prayer, as they are connected, God reveals himself in a way he... The psalmist says God inhabits the praises of his people. That's where he dwells. You want to know where God dwells? He dwells when you and I are together singing these praises. Even an imprecatory psalm, like you sang a few minutes ago, uh, it still is the power of God uniting us together. And that's why the Bible encourages um, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's very important to be gathered with God's people uh, on the Lord's day. It's very significant for you and for the church. And the third description of the church is that it's the pillar and foundation of the truth or the pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, Calvin writes about that. It's no ordinary dignity that is ascribed to the church when it is called the pillar and ground of the truth. For what higher terms could have been used to describe it? Now, we know that the Bible is our foundation, and of course, Christ is the chief cornerstone. But what's being communicated here is that as the church together uh, binds itself around the Word of God and remains faithful and true to the teaching of the Word of God, that that's our, uh, the, the mortar of our bricks being together. You see, we become, in this world, a foundation for the truth. Uh, you have many friends who wander and they're unsettled in their lives and they don't know where they're headed. <clears throat> and you, you can... <clears throat> tell them, I know where I'm headed because I know where the truth is. <clears throat> the truth is in God's word. The truth is uh, in the church. And as we are faithful uh, to that truth, we become a pillar and foundation 
uh, to those around us, pointing them to where uh, stability is to be found uh, in, uh, in, in life. Um, Jesus prayed, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is true. And so while we don't take the description that we're the pillar and ground of the truth, Paul, God through Paul, gives it to us as our calling to hold fast. Uh, one of the things we've seen Paul have to urge on Timothy throughout this letter is to be on your guard against those who teach some other doctrine. So it's your calling and my calling for us to remain true to the truth of the Scriptures. And then we become a place where the strength of that truth can be be found. So those three wonderful descriptions of the church, the household of God, the church of the living God, the place where he dwells, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now the second point is the conduct of the household, and he doesn't go into a lot of detail at this specific point of the, the book, If we go back to verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay or if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave. So it was Paul's goal. Remember, he was probably in Mesopotamia, north of what we know as Greece, and traveling around, having been released from his uh, first Roman imprisonment. And... uh, had sent Timothy back into Turkey, Asia Minor, Ephesus, and that's where Paul administered for quite a bit of time. And his goal, Paul's goal, was to get back there to help Timothy with all the things he was dealing with in that city, in that church. But he knows circumstances can get in the way and he could be delayed. So the purpose of this letter is to help Timothy, understand how the life of the church should be conducted. And that's part of what we've seen throughout this letter up to this point, and we'll continue to see it. In uh, chapter 1, he warned him about those who are heterodox and teaching false doctrine, and he needed to rebuke them. The church has to be a guardian of the truth. We ought not to let anyone in our pulpit who isn't going to speak the truth. doesn't mean you like everybody that stands up there, but they need to be telling you the truth. And if they're not, we need to not have them back. Uh, We have to tell those who speak falsely uh, to to quit. Uh, We have the reminder in that first chapter, what is it that's our great joy? This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So we're reminded of the heart of the conduct and ministry of the church, which is in the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that as part of a guide to our conduct in the church. That's our focal point of attention. There's warnings along the way of those who have Abandon the faith. That thought will come back in the next chapter. And then we had all of chapter 2, which, remember, 
we worked our way through that is all about the worship of God and how it ought to be con- conducted, who should lead worship, who should be involved in worship, what is what should they be doing in worship. And so we labored through that uh, conduct of the church in the worship. And then chapter 3, as we've been going through that, uh, certain men will be elected to office. And what are the qualifications of those who would serve as a de- as an elder or pastor? What are the qualifications of those who would serve as a deacon? So again, all of these things are part of what Paul's giving and guidelines on the conduct of the church. And we need to take all of these things very, very seriously. Later on, he's going to get into dealing with widows and uh, some of the other matters of conduct in the church. So we have the household conduct that God wants us to cultivate and develop. Uh, he wants us to please him. Uh, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 3, just for a moment, as he's giving instruction on worship, if we follow what he has to say, verse 3, he says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's if when we conduct ourselves in the way that God wants us to, then we become uh, a help to directing people to please God and to know the truth. So we have the characteristics of the church, the conduct of the church, and then we have the confession of the church, which is verse 16. Uh, There are... um, this, this, this is, if some of your translations will have this kind of set apart, like in a little poem. Uh, if you have an older translation, it'll just be all in one. But if you have a little poem, <coughs> what you're being given a glimpse of is that this is an early creedal hymn of the church. So in the time of Paul's day, uh, the worship of the church probably included the singing of psalms, perhaps even primarily. But even at this early date, you have uh, the writing of hymns. And this would have been a an early creedal hymn that the church would sing as part of their worship. And it's all about the mystery of godliness. It says the mystery of godliness is great. Again, the word mystery, we encounter it pretty regularly. It's not something hard to figure out. It's something that had been veiled in the Old Covenant and now is unveiled in the Gospel of Christ and in the New Testament. So it's not like you have it's a mystery in the sense that you're trying to figure this out. What it is is God's unveiled this so you can see it. You can see it clearly. And uh, you can embrace it. And there are six lines in this hymn and they fall into three pairs. So I want to have us look at those in uh, the three pairs, uh, the mystery of godliness, which we conf- confess. The first pair are, he appeared in a body. Uh, the ESV, I think, has he was manifested in the flesh. And he was vindicated by the Spirit. So we have in these first two uh, couplets, or this first couplet, these first two parts of the line, 
we have the revelation of Christ. He appeared in a body. It's Jesus' incarnation that is being talked about, his birth and his incarnation. It's that Christ, the Son of God, uh, appeared in a body. He became a man. Um, the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Says, quoting a psalm, but giving voice to the Messiah, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me on the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And so part of the gospel revelation is the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, <clears throat> has come and become incarnate in the flesh. That's a very significant element and part of the revelation of Christ, the revelation of this great mystery. <clears throat> but the second thing is he was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. So here I'd like to have you go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we'll pick it up at verse 1, uh, but it's uh, 3 and 4 that I want you to focus on. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so you have in that verse, parallel to the mystery of godliness here, the two things. He, according to the flesh, he was of the descendant of David, but he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so the two bookends of revelation that this great mystery of godliness is, talk, is talking about is his incarnation and his resurrection. And it encompasses then, of course, all of Jesus' life and ministry. But it, Jesus was revealed to us in a rich and wonderful way through his incarnation and through his resurrection he appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And the church sings about that, just as we sing about that. The second uh, set of couplets <clears throat> are the witnesses to Christ. So we have the revelation of Christ. Now we have the witnesses to Christ. <clears throat> and it's in these two phrases. He was seen by angels and he was preached among the nations. And the witnesses uh, for Christ are twofold. One's supernatural, one's natural. One's the heavenly angels. The other is the earthly nations, the preaching of the gospel 
uh, among all nations. So the one is the the um, supernatural revelation. The other is the human revelation, or excuse me, witness. And as we think about the angelic witness, the angels were very involved in the life of Christ. Um, they were there at his birth. The angel of the Lord um, came, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests is the sky filled with angelic uh, witnesses to the birth of Christ. When Jesus was tempted by Satan after the 40 days and when Satan left him, the scripture tells us the angels came and ministered to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was pleading with the Father that the cup be taken from him and he, his sweat was like great, great drops of blood, when he had completed that praying and had accepted the cup, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him for the great agony that he was going to have. Uh, who were the first witnesses besides the soldiers of the resurrection? It was the angels. They were there. They were there when he rose again and gave a witness to his resurrection <clears throat> to the to the disciples. And uh, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, who was there? The angels. The angels are a powerful and wonderful witness to Christ. And we see it woven throughout the whole account of Scripture of Jesus. But we also have the witness of the preaching. It's the human witness. It begins, began with the apostles and the apostolic witness. <clears throat> it continues with the, the um, place of preaching in the church among all nations to our very day. The mystery of godliness isn't something that is just out there and no one can figure out. It has a revelation of Christ. It has the witness to Christ by the angels, by the preaching of the gospel. And so it's a rich and wonderful truth that we sing about. And then the third set of, cup, of, of stanzas is the reception of Christ. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up into glory. In a sense, you have two states, two, two areas of geography, so to speak, in regard to the reception of Christ. It's part of the glory of Christ that he was received. He was received, first of all, in this world by men. Um. In John 1, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own, that's the Jews, did not receive him. But to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God, children born not of the flesh, nor of the will of the husband, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And so Jesus was received <clears throat> and believed on in the world. Uh, we have that truth and that reality. And it's part of the glory of the 
great mystery that's been unveiled. Um, we already referred to it, looked at it. Uh, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When sinners are saved, that is Christ being received, <clears throat> the witness of Christ being received, the revelation of Christ being received, and praise God among people, Christ, by the work and power of the Holy Spirit, believe on him. And then the last stanza is, and he was taken up into glory. As he's received and believed on in this world, this reception by his gracious work in this world, we have the reality that he was received on in glory, that the Father received him to his right hand and seated him at the place of authority and of power. And uh, all those angels that aided him on earth were there to welcome him, and the Father and the Holy Spirit, they all welcomed him and received him into the very presence of God where he will dwell forevermore. <clears throat> it's a grand and wonderful hymn. Uh, great is the mystery of godliness. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and taken up into glory. And your calling and my calling as part of this church is be part of the household, uh, <clears throat> be part of the church, the dwelling place of the living God, to be united in being the pillar and ground, the foundation of the truth, the buttress of the truth, to conduct ourselves in a way and to take up our own confession of the great mystery of godliness so that you and I might bring glory to the Lord, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we'll do everything to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the great mystery of godliness, the great revelation of your grace and your truth in your people. Thank you for making us a family of God. Thank you for dwelling in us as the living God. Thank you for helping us to be united and bound together in the truth. <laughs> Help us to conduct ourselves and to, to give a sound and good confession of your truth and your gospel. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in all of this you would be honored and glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.